Welcome to Occupations, the podcast, where we discuss what it's like to hold specific jobs. Occupations is brought to you by LotsOfMaps.com, where you fulfill your vintage map gifting needs. Visit LotsOfMaps.com. Hi again, Andy Jagalins are here, and uh, welcome to Occupations, the podcast. Um, I'm here with Tracy Green, and Tracy is the professor and director of opioid policy research collaborative at Brandeis University, and I'd like to welcome her right now. Hi, Tracy. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for (laughs) coming on our show. Um, I know you wear a couple of hats. Um, Let's talk about Brandeis first, and then we'll get into uh, your other gig as well. Um, But um, I want to... I want to talk about what it is that you do. That's what we do here in Occupations and your job uh, and what it entails and uh, how you got into it and, uh, and you know, what, what your day-to-day is like. So uh, tell me a little bit about how, how would you describe this to somebody, what you do in, uh, in just a couple of words? I usually start with that I'm a public health scientist. And with intrigue, I kind of dive a little more deeply and say that I'm an epidemiologist. That usually lands people thinking about either you study skin or lately because of COVID, they're like, oh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. So um, as an epidemiologist, uh, we look at trends and patterns in disease and try to see ways to try to either prevent or slow um, disease progression. So it's really a lot of heavy statistics, but with human eyes and thinking about the politics and the history and the culture and the community at the same time. So you can do, do good. So that was more than just a few words. I gotta be honest. (laughs) That really kind of encapsulates it all because you're right. The first thing I think of is skin. You're absolutely right. (laughs) It's the first thing I think of. Um, it makes sense. So, um, so, you're a professor and a director. So are you teaching, first of all, at Brandeis? Are you, are you actually teaching students? So this fall will be my first opportunity to be teaching. So I'm excited to be doing that with um, some of the doctoral level students at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management. Awesome. Um, I did teach before when I was at Yale as a graduate student. And I, my first and favorite students were the fifth graders that I tutored when I was um, a high school student myself. Um, and tutored the fifth grade. Long division was my absolute favorite. That's where it all began. Wow. <laughs> and certainly math is a big part of any science. We yeah. all know that. So kids work on your math is what we're saying. <laughs> um, uh, so y- you are about to teach, which is great. And I'm assuming you do a ton of research. That's probably like 99.8% of what I do. And for me, you know, research is only useful if it can be applied. I'm at a point in my my life and my career that I can't put time into questions that are either frivolous or that don't have an end in sight or don't have a direct application to the community. And um, especially, you know, as someone who looks at and studies opioids and drugs and some of the challenges with the drug epidemic that we have, it's not, um, it's really useful and thrilling to be part of solutions um, and not as always like describing things that are turning sour or that aren't going to go anywhere. So my, my research is focused on things that are promising or have promise and applications that have hope. So that's my, my goal. Well, and certainly um, opioids are in the headlines uh, uh, a lot over the last mm, really what eight or 10 years we've been, we've been seeing a lot about uh, uh, certainly an epidemic. Um, I, I challenge anyone to, 
tell me they don't know somebody who's been affected by opioids in one way or another. So it's certainly something that is uh, top of mind for a lot of us. And uh, thank you for for working as hard as you do to try to solve the the issues uh, that we have in front of us. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you first got involved. So um, what was the point where you said, this is the direction I want to go as far as opioids. Uh, now, I imagine science was always a big a big thing for you growing up, or at least math was a big thing for you growing up. But when did you see research, science research, as, uh, as your future? I am the child of two musicians, a music teacher and a professional uh, studio musician for movies and television. And I grew up in Los Angeles, but I was surrounded by... Um, art and science and the art and science um, kind of dance that sometimes happens and really thinking very creatively about what you can do as an artist and as um, an activist. I think that was the other big thing. I I grew up being both um, interested in writing and um, political action, being involved with investigative journalism and um, really thinking about formulating opinions. And I loved debate. Um, I loved mysteries. I loved to find out the story and solving the puzzle and kind of learning the answers, um, getting to not necessarily what's right, but learning about the process and being part of like solving things. I had no idea what public health was. I had no idea about epidemiology. I knew I was good at math, but I was I was interested in political activism and I wanted to study international relations. And I, but pulling everything together, I realized, you know, both the opportunity of public health is to use science and math in ways that are applied and that are meaningful to keep people healthy and safe. I knew I did not do well with individual care. So a medical doctor pathway was not a very respectful and and, uh, dignified pathway. But I thought at a level of populations of people and place and time and history and culture. And that felt like something that was more what I was good at, um, thinking kind of interdisciplinarily, and um, but also being part of a team. I really liked that science was, um, you, you know, you, you're, if you're right, you're right together. If you're wrong, you're wrong together. If you fall down, you fall down together. And so that's how I've, it's been really fun to build that over my career, but also to recognize, like, I like teams. I like math. I like um, helping people. And I like working for the underdog and um, having, finding justice in that. So, but it's interesting with the drug related interests and pathway. I grew up in Los Angeles, lots of uh, urban problems and not necessarily at my doorstep, but very much in my world. And you couldn't help but cross paths with a lot of um, gang related violence and drug related violence and a lot of social injustices that were happening all around me. A number of my friends um, early on as teenagers were experimenting as many teenagers do, but also getting hurt and realizing like there were how, why were they getting hurt and how could I help them? And I think over time I got more interested in thinking about drugs as something that we could change and that you could be part of as a, to see how it was affecting different communities and how you might be able to change that. So um, when I started to date, um, met some f- some friends and um, some 
partners along the way that were heavily involved in drugs. And, but also I saw that their relationship with drugs changed. Um, sometimes this was non-problematic and it could be a really good time. Take and help people think about the world in a different way and open up experiences for people at really formative times in your life but it could also be really harmful too. And so the relationship with the drug rather than the drug itself was the thing that I sort of really wanted to learn more and think about a lot more. But um, the injustices of the drug war and the drug policies were as a, a younger or a rising adult, I guess, is what you start to look around and sort of think about why as a white woman and experimenting with something I'm going, not going to have trouble, but someone with a different color skin or in a different part of the city might have a very different um, set of consequences. And that privilege was felt like it was, was wrong. So I sort of started to think about how can I incorporate science and math <laughs> and some of these skills and, um, and to protest in a different way. And so that's sort of where I start to experiment a little bit more with the field of epidemiology and public health as it relates to drug policy. There were some really amazing people along the way who showed me that that, that was a, a place where I could spend my career. But. So um, you, you finished high school. You did your undergrad where? Um, I did not want to be in California. I wanted to get away and escape and probably just uh, both out of protest, but also I had some family in New York and Washington, D.C., and I visited a couple times over summers and I really enjoyed the East Coast. So I applied to schools um, along the East Coast and landed in Boston. So I went to Tufts and had a, a really wanted to study international relations. And so I landed um, at Tufts starting out there. They didn't have a community health or a public health program at the time. Now, of course, they do. It's a vibrant program. But that math pathway, I actually applied to um, the engineering school at the same time and started down down the idea of like, maybe I'll be an engineer as well as engineering degree and similar and uh, public health and international relations uh, in international public health work or something like this. But I quickly realized that engineering wasn't, wasn't for me. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you finished Tufts. Had you started to see your, your pathway at all or no, your, your, um, was there something in you or, or people that you have met along the way that sort of said, you know, you should try this or you should, uh, get into involved with this yeah so part of my political activism at the end of my high school career once I had wheels and in LA that's everything <laughs> um, I got really involved with AIDS Project Los Angeles and the HIV epidemic was the epidemic of, of my youth and really thinking about the grand injustices of um, HIV transmission so I used to skip school to lobby for HIV related um, healthcare bills and different things and really met some truly amazing people who were really suffering, but who were fighting to the death. And we did a lot of really amazing things together. But I was also a high school student. Um, so I carried that activism with me into at Tufts and continue to stay involved um, with a Boston area aid service organization that was doing, you know, Boston's an amazing place for so many pro progressive um, actions and um, especially in social justices righted in, in this city. So it, that HIV pathway was another one that I continued to be involved with. That brought me into great contact with people at Tufts who were doing work in, in public health and that was sort of how that pathway ended up. But 
I didn't, I still didn't know what epidemiology and public health was until I graduated. And I, I graduated a year early and I really wanted to get to doing things. I wanted to sure. um, dive in and I got a position as a research assistant at a company in West Concord called Caro Research. Um, and there met um, some other research assistants who were also interested in, in this thing called public health. And they did um, the fascinating field of pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacoeconomics, which is like cost effectiveness of fill in the blank. At the time, they were focused mostly on heart health and diabetes and other areas of health that I wasn't particularly interested in. But I loved the idea of um, applied like helping people with these decisions and, and policy and, and systems that were informed by that. And they were all epidemiologists. And that was how I found, I was like, yes, that's what I can do. Maybe not in this particular field, maybe not with this particular set of problems, but these are my people. And that's um, the title you need. That was it. Yeah. So okay, we had a fun, most everybody had been, um, were Canadian or had been educated in Canada at, at um, McGill University. And one summer, we went up for a week at McGill of learning about a pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacoeconomics. And um, I sat in my future department and it was really amazing. And I loved Montreal. I loved living in, being in another country, being in a different space, stepping out of your skin and sort of learning how other people thought about public health. And um, so I did my master's degree at the subsequent year there. Did you have there. to do a minor in hockey? <laughs> that was essential. <laughs> I assumed that everything revolves around hockey. Um, so McGill. So McGill is a great school, obviously. Um, so that's where you got your chops to really kind of become an ep epidemiologist and... I learned and, uh, the trade. I learned the science. I learned how to fight for and advocate for myself as a someone who was learned, trying to learn something. The Canadian and, and the European systems are very different systems of education than um, the American system. And I learned how to, a lot of respect for the approach of um, public health there. Most of my colleagues were um, medical doctors or other highly trained medical professionals. Or their vi vision of public health is one of like a civil servant. And in this case, um, it was really exciting. Uh, there were a lot of people who would come from all over the country as physicians, surgeons, nurses, working in all different fields to learn about epidemiology. And there I was like the lone American um, <laughs> learning about what was happening and how it was different. And um, I had a project that we were asked to focus on hepatitis C. And again, I was still all about HIV. I was like, I'm going to study HIV and be a public health epidemiologist and HIV. And we had a project, um, at Santé Publique, at the Montreal Public Health Department. And I was paired up with a small group of, of other colleagues who were looking at hepatitis C. Um, and I was like, what is hepatitis C? Like, I think it's related to HIV, but learned about it. And it was really affecting people who were injecting drugs. And I met a wonderful one, um, Catherine Hankins, who became a wonderful, my, one of my first mentors in this field. And she led the HIV women's um, health cohort a large study all across Canada of women with HIV. And she had helped build the first um, needle exchange in all of uh, North America, Cactus Montreal, and also was really involved with the uh, sex worker union and some of the sex worker rights efforts. And I, my mind was completely blown by everything that was happening in Canada and learning about harm reduction and learning about 
empowering people who use drugs and people who are affected by the social ills and challenges and empowering them to be involved in research and empowering the teams to really listen. So I, everything I learned <laughs> from then on was totally devoted to people who inject drugs and people who are using drugs and um, how HIV was at the time, HIV was very much affecting people who were injecting, but could be you know, hugely impacted by providing access to sterile materials. And that was where everything kind of changed. And um, So let me ask you this. Um, so you were in Canada at the time. Were the Canadians more open about this policy than the Americans were, were at the time? Or was the same kind of work being done here uh, around the same time? No, I was, I was there, unfortunately, during... Um, uh, the Bush administration, and there was a very strong criticism around harm reduction. Even when I came back, I really worried for my, my ability to get a job. Um, not because I had come with a Canadian degree, but because I was working in harm reduction. I will tell you that my master's thesis was to explore the willingness to use a supervised injection facility in Montreal <laughs> and worked with um, collected survey data from 250 people who inject drugs in public places in Montreal. And um, worked with that team to understand um, if there was a supervised injection facility is what we called it at the time. Now we call them overdose prevention sites or, and there are 80 of them across Canada at the time. Our, my study in 2000 um, and 2001 envisioned this and asked like, if we build it, you know, would you come and what would it look like and what would it be like? Um, based on that, Catherine Hankins um, was invited for Health Canada to be part of a committee to look at for Canada and perhaps trial um, a supervised injection facility. And um, she looked at her calendar and she's like, you know, I just, I can't commit to this, but I think you should go. And I was like, what? I'm, hello, I'm an American, not even a Canadian. I can't be on a Health Canada committee. And by the way, have you noticed I'm a master's student without a degree? And she's like, you have read more papers. You've thought about this way more than anybody else, way more than I have. And it was really lovely. And um, so she, you know, this is, this was the essence of mentorship and scholarly uh, um, activity to sort of stand down and lift up. And I learned a lot from that. You know, you, it was karma, you know, you pass on what you experience and, um, but you so worked to, for it. it I did. I wouldn't, yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's wasn't like a handout. It was <laughs> for uh, sure. You clearly deserved <laughs> to have this opportunity, but it is that isn't that funny that there's, there's that one opportunity that you're given and sometimes there's multiples, but there's usually that one that you're given and you want to hit it while it's right. Uh, it was amazing. Sounds like you probably did. So tell us more. We, um, uh, there were a couple of us from Montreal who went to, you know, had the experience of going with peers, um, uh, a wonderful colleague who was heavily involved in the sex worker union at the time and um, other people from the Quebec ministry. And we all traveled and had this experience of um, simultaneously translated um, in French and English, you know, meeting over a couple days. And we considered whether there should be a trial of a supervised injection facility in Canada and how many and where should it be. And our recommendation at the end of the three days was, um, I think it was three days, but it was two, it was several days of, um, of testimony and debate and um, 
But the recommendation was to trial one, and the history kind of played out that Vancouver opened Insight, um, the first supervised injection facility in North America, and um, continued to do a ton of research on showing, of course, that it saves lives. And there are um, other positive things that come from uh, providing access to a safe place for people to, to use who are otherwise oftentimes victimized, you know, die in public places or um, in, in HIV infections are spread through reuse of, of uh, non-sterile materials. So this was a, a really important set of research that, um, I mean, it replicates what's happened in the rest in other parts of the, the world. But as we, you know, today, fast forward to 2023, we're sort of debating this um, in Rhode Island where my other hat and my other life sits at in Rhode Island, the legislature passed and approved uh, and a first pilot of uh, a, a state sanctioned and the governor signed several years ago now, the ability to trial and open an overdose prevention site, not totally unlike one that we talked about 23 years ago. Did you have um, anything to do with that, with Rhode Island? Well, I'm assuming you had some some part to play? It was a big, it's a huge endeavor. <laughs> there are many people. Mm. I was certainly not at the helm, but it, but contributing for sure over the years. We tried it a number of different times, and but this time it was really, the, I think this time around, it was really the community and fentanyl being, you know, bringing us all to our knees of um, really, it's time to think about other additional solutions. And, you know, it's really thrilling to see this same idea coming forth and you know, obviously there's one in New York, um, a couple in New York, as well as um, you know, we're entertaining this in current legislation um, being debated in Massachusetts. And we have a leadership who are really support, much more supportive than we've ever had um, uh, environment. So as a scientist, I'm, this isn't like the main thing that I do right now, but I realize when we, whenever we collect data in a place, um, my mind is attuned to the things that would make a consumption space an option for a municipality and what kind of data would be helpful. And we try to then in, include it, collect it, and then present it back and share it back so that if the community wants to act on it, they have data to help support and bring that forward either to you know the mayor or the state legislature or whatever. But, that is the essence um, of data, right? And that's to be used, right? Uh, okay, so you graduate from McGill? Yes. And then what happens? Uh, well... In between there was 9-11 and it became um, a really, I mean, so many complex feelings about that one, but um, I will say going back and forth over the border became more of a chore. And so when I came back and was in Boston sort of for good, I was like, I think it's time to find a job in the States. And that was uh, challenging, partially as I sort of mentioned, like the, if, if my thesis, which was on my resume was offensive at any point for any of the employers, it usually inspired some questions, but I really lucked out. I got, a, I had a, a, a quick call, um, from someone who was really interested in my CV and, um, didn't mind that I had a Canadian degree because <laughs> it was, it's hard in Boston. You know, there's usually a preference for American universities and of certain types and otherwise, but really lovely, um, connection. And I worked at a, it was offered a job and worked as a biostatistician, which is the other side of epidemiology, the, um, more hardcore statistical aspects. But, um, I was trained in both. So at a company called Inflection that has two X's, uh, Inflection, 
also the inflection point, but um, fascinating and kind of only in Massachusetts, a behavioral health technology company. And they did um, NIH funded or National Institutes of Health funded research grants using technology. They were a small business and they created interventions. Um, they were most of the people working there were clinical psychologists working in addiction and addiction behavioral um, interventions and everything from alcohol to depression to um, sexually transmitted infections and sort of adolescent health, HIV, and uh, but a lot in the opioid area and, and pain medication was a huge uh, topic of, of interest for um, helping using technology. I mean, this was like everything from like there was like the CD-ROM versions of things. There was Palm Pilot interventions and um, websites that had flash. It was really cutting edge stuff at the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thought that um, it was really ahead of its time in so many ways. Every, the company was massively successful. And we put in grants all the time. Like we, you know, came, coming from a pretty high caliber un university, we got used to you know, preparing good, solid research. So I was the person who helped kind define and refine a scientist's idea with them in a team. And, but they were always in these topic areas. Um, and we did, I mean, it literally was like a lot of college student related health and some medical professionals. And so I liked that quite a lot. And I learned so much from um, how to engage people in interventions and, um, uh, using creativity and humor to engage people, um, visualizations and things that were kind of now you look at it and you're like, of course, it's an infographic, or of course you have a tableau interactive this, or like these were not possible in 2001. So these were visions of the future. And uh, so I learned to think, to to kind of tap that creative part of science, surrounded by this like tech company that otherwise would have been in Silicon Valley. But you know what they got? was the behavior, behavioral economics, behavior medicine, how people's brains, like how they think, and um, how do you motivate people? How do you retain people? How do you continue to pique curiosity? That is something that is very different from your run-of-the-mill Silicon Valley kind of great idea that'll last for a little while and then it poof is disappearing. And so I mean, my job was to sit with the data and see, did it work? You know, they spent all this time building these things and working really interactively with creative design and videographers and like putting all these amazing um, interventions together. And it was like, did it work? Did it work? Did it work? <laughs> and did we design it in a way that you could see if it worked? That was my job. So using science to help design these, the, this research question so that if it worked, we could be, be able to detect it instead of the chaos that sometimes happens in um, real world, you know, real world science. So that was really fabulous and fun. And uh, but I realized so I pitched a couple of things in harm reduction and working with people who use drugs who are actively using drugs, not in treatment. And there were people who are willing and interested, but it was hard to see what the market is. And that is one of the challenges I think of working in a small business was pitching your idea. So I learned a lot about how to pitch an idea and even one that maybe has um, social benefit, but wasn't necessarily a capital investment or a return on what's the return on investment and the, those questions of like, to whom? That's something as a you know scientist, I have to pitch my grant ideas all the time. And as, a, as an American scientist. As an American scientist. <laughs> and it is a, well, and honestly, Capitalist. as a female scientist, too. Sure. It's like that aspect yeah. of, you know, it's not uncommon for me to be, even still, like, to be very much, you know, one of the women in the room of law enforcement type people who want to talk about the drug supply. And I 
try to, you know, my sex and my gender don't always get in the way and are um, not, you know, to try to equalize that as much as possible and to advocate for more women in the room um, as well. But yes, that's, um, that was very much a, um, whose voice, who's, who's there, who's not, and, right, the, right. and what are we investing in? I think that was the thing. But it was interesting because one of, one of the last like products, if you will, or research um, efforts that we engaged in with that small business was a, this is gonna sound really boring, but post-marketing surveillance. What does that mean? Uh, after medications, after pain medications, or any medication is um, approved by FDA, pharmaceutical companies have to engage in surveillance of their product to make sure it's being used safely, there are no adverse events associated with it. Um, and if you have a controlled substance like Oxycontin or another pain medication, you have to show that it's not being diverted or misused, such as by injection or by um, insufflation snorting or other routes of administration, more than you would expect. So there's this approval process that the FDA goes through and they weigh, you know, is the risk, is there a benefit to the patients and to the community? Should we approve this drug? And then once it's approved, it's not like one and done, you know, they continue to see, is there a problem with this or is it being misused inappropriately? And that may be marketing. It could be, it need, you know, people need training, maybe all sorts of things. So what I didn't know is that at the time I was the only card carrying epidemiologist in this company. Mm. And they were like, I think we have, we have a tool to collect information that we've developed. And these pharmaceutical companies need to know if their medications are being misused. And they were companies like, oh, Purdue Pharma, you know, Endo Pharmaceuticals, many of those that are, you know, taken now, their names are known to us, Johnson Johnson, like because of some of the challenges of um, the litigation. And, but at the time, the requirement really was that they have to show and report to the FDA that their medications are not being misused. So we developed a surveillance tool or basically a way to monitor the how medications were being misused and we used science and behavioral science and um, everything that we could and technology to develop a, a solid tool and um, it ended up being one of the most you know for the company it was definitely like their flagship product if you will but also as an epidemiologist this is like a dream come true when people are like how many so can you like design a sample for this how many places do we need to go to how many people do we need to talk to to be confident in what we're seeing and what if the medication is only used by or misused by certain kinds of people in a certain way how do we how do we build this and it's like a dream come true to be able so to so you're sort of helping that. write the rules uh, write the standards and potentially make it uh, safer for all in the end Right. That was the thing. So we're looking at trends in how was um, OxyContin, for instance, being injected or snorted or, you know, used in ways in, in places. And so we built that, but started to see some cracks in the system and the ethical aspects of what do you do when you see a red flag? And is that something you ha share with the company the FDA, the public, the whatever, the CDC? And, uh, you know, so along the way we saw for those who kind of track this kind of thing, but Opana had uh, pretty serious health problems associated with its injection and how it was uh, um, some of the health problems associated with in injecting. They hadn't expected it to be injected. The uncrushable Oxycontin when it was reformulated to not be crushable, it could be crushed and it could be defeated. That, that was a, um, you know, a 
thing of science, a falsehood that um, people who want to misuse a medication are going to look to find ways to do that. And then, of course, the an unfortunate and but expected shift to heroin and then heroin to fentanyl. So it was a time where I kind of left at just as things were starting um, to be built. And I left to do further study because I wanted to use I loved doing all these working in interventions and um, all these different scientific areas, but I really, my heart was in, in drug policy and um, this particular topic of opioids and, and, um, and overdose. And so I left the company and went to Yale, but I actually came back to the company years later and built out the public health aspects of using this very large same data set and using it to measure things like transitions to heroin and other, other things that, so it was it came full circle, but um, by way of learning a little bit more at Yale a lot before I could do that. Lotsofmaps.com. Vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. So uh, what did you learn at Yale? Um, well, first of all, uh, it was clear that if I, in a, even in a small company full of wonderful PhDs and um, PsyDs, people with doctoral degrees, that my master's degree was not going to cut it if I wanted to have the kind of impact I wanted to have and the thirst for knowledge that I had and the activism that I really wanted to do. So the, you know, air quote meal ticket was you have to do this and you have to do it the best you possibly can. So I applied to a bunch of colleges and universities for um, PhD programs and Yale was wonderful and it was, you know, close enough by that I could be close to my husband um, at the time, but also had a wonderful program in HIV and drug-related researchers that were doing amazing things. Um, Robert Heimer is, um, and, and all of the people at uh, the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS, but Robert Heimer in particular is a mentor that I you know, owe so much to him. But his research, he collected syringes that were marked from, and those that were distributed, he and a team, of course, but <laughs> the ones that were distributed from the syringe service program at, in New Haven and those that were um, not, and they were able to um, see the, detect the circulation time and to measure how much HIV continued to be in syringes that were coming from the syringe service program versus those that were in the community. And they could calculate that the ones from the syringe service program circulated less HIV because there just wasn't as much time. So a, a syringe that was kind of like thinking about it like a vector, like a mosquito, the mosquito that has um, malaria, that if you have preventive measures, then you reduce the amount of the opportunity for mosquito to transmit. The same thing, a syringe that's in the community for longer has a more opportunity to, to infect more people with HIV. So it's a very kind of, it was elegant, it was simple. And I was like, I want to be that kind of scientist. I want to think about how do I do that kind of impactful work? So that's why I spent my time and, um, but no, my path fair. took me down to overdose rather than yeah. HIV in the end. And then what led you to Brandeis? After getting my degree and um, kind of focusing on uh, my side gig, if you will, was going to the medical examiner's office in Connecticut. And at that time, I saw that um, we, we were doing a service in some ways because we didn't know what was happening with pain medication challenges. And we had hints of it in the lay press. And, but the medical examiner's office had all the data that we needed. Um, it just wasn't 
formulated in a way that public health could see the problem. And um, for lots of political reasons, you know, things were kind of defunded, if you will. That was heavy pharmaceutical industry influence to defund every aspect so we didn't see a problem. So, you know, but you're a PhD student, so I could you know, <laughs> go and spend some quality time. So I went every week for um, the entirety of my, my degree. So this was several years of going to the medical examiner's office and I reviewed about 11,000 overdose cases and doing that and could see the trends that were starting to use the statistics to sort of see some of those trends and um, call it, you know, call it for what it was. And um, but after I left, I was like, there's so much that we are not doing in this topic. Like it was it felt like the injustice piece, the political activism piece with data, we could change things. So I started to write grants um, when I came to Rhode Island Hospital and Brown and started writing grants in this area. And lo and behold, things started getting funded and funded and funded. So um, that caught the attention of the health department in Rhode Island because they knew that something was happening with injuries, but they didn't know what was happening with poisonings. So shedding that light on that it was not just, you know, yes, poisonings is the larger what we call it, but overdose is the, was the um, drive. And once we started to realize this was like the leading cause of injury, death in the state and the politicians and um, our state leadership in Rhode Island started to shift. It was slower in other states and Rhode Island was small. And I really loved the idea of that I could call the attorney general up. I could call the governor's office up. I could call the health department up. It's a wonderful place to have an have an impact and i was connected to a lot of other researchers working in the prison and so kind of a whole um whole health kind of look at all the social pieces that were coming together like if we're going to change overdose we have to change the way that we how we incarcerate we have to think about treatment we need to open up pharmacies we need to open up um uh, and reduce the arresting of individuals who are using drugs and and shift our relationship with people who are at risk of overdose. And so that in Rhode Island inspired me to do to do a lot more. So I've sort of been nonstop on <laughs> research okay. and the policy since. But Brandeis was um, kind of along the way I spent more time in Massachusetts afterwards. I went to BMC and worked at uh, Boston Medical Center at the Injury Center there and um, BU School of Public Health. And... Um, and then after that, landed at Brandeis to lead the Opioid Policy Research Collaborative. Most of my work continues to be in overdose and naloxone access. So these are Narcan, if people talk about this. We're able to do things like get Narcan into the pharmacies across the country and to show that um, providing Narcan in prisons for people who, as they are released from, from prison, um, will help uh, reduce their risk of death. But other aspects of like treatment um, and different ways that we might be able to keep people alive long enough so that they can experience less harm in their life, engage with their families, be part of the community that um, very much loves and wants them to be there. But we have a lot of clouded laws and a lot of ill-informed approaches. That leads me to um, your job, your job itself. So let's talk about what it is you do. We, we, get a, we get a ballpark understanding, maybe a little more than a ballpark understanding of what what it you know what the long-term goals are and and what your your what's your day-to-day -day like well and let's talk about brandeis yeah. we haven't touched on on rhode island yet uh, but let's just talk about at brandeis what what is your day-to-day -day? you're doing research are you physically doing research are you directing others to do it or are you right in there with them doing the, the research are you running numbers 
Um, what are you doing? Uh, I do kind of eat all of the above. <laughs> um, so I feel really strongly that any data collection that we do. So there's um, the kind of data collection I like to do um, still is very much engaged with people in the community. And so we call this sort of primary data collection where we're, we actively create the questions. We do surveys and interviews, um, focus groups and other ways of collecting the information. So I tend to like to both um, direct that, but also be part of it. And then we have teams of people who are managing the project and um, research assistants and other um, outreach partners and stuff in the field and field I usually mean like um, our communities across Massachusetts and Rhode Island and so the majority of that work is with um, people who are actively using drugs and and the community partner programs like the service providers but also the doctors nurses pharmacists who may be interacting with people who use drugs lately over the past five or so years have been uh, working with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and um, an initiative called the Overdose Response Strategy. And that is um, a partnership between lots of alphabets here, but ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which is part of the exact office of the, of the president. And um, they have a kind of very law enforcement, kind of strategic law enforcement approach. And they realize that they sit on all these data. Like in general, law enforcement sits on a lot of data. A lot of it can be extremely helpful for public health. And CDC uh, leadership kind of recognized that, as did some really thoughtful leaders like Michael Botticelli, who um, led uh, in Massachusetts before he led ONDCP. But under these like visionaries, they realized the public health and public safety should have better partnerships. And while for a lot of my career, I've spent like pointing fingers at the police or pointing fingers at the, these laws and how they're imposed and uh, you know how people greatly suffer from the, at the hands of law enforcement, that uh, people can't arrest their way out of this problem. And we need to actually work together and collaborate. And I think from some of my community partners, those had that have learned to work with and at least communicate with, not necessarily BFFs here, but being able to coordinate and collaborate on some level with public safety that they benefit more when they have someone they can call because otherwise they the law enforcement and public safety may take it out on people in the community or may, may, may be unable to and frustrated by the system itself and um, the most vulnerable of the people who, who we work with. So that kind of collaboration has been the secret sauce of a lot of what I've seen in Massachusetts and in other places. And again, we're not like talking about like, it's often a thumb war who's on top, you know, is it public health and harm reduction or is it um, public safety in this regard? But uniquely, I think learning how to talk with the government, learning how to talk with leadership, learning how to talk with politicians, and learning how to talk with law enforcement became something that was very central to what I needed and wanted to do. And I saw that was a, a role for scientists to be able to translate really to one another. Sometimes that's also the media, <laughs> but sure. I, but most importantly to kind of nudge things along and get people to stay, you know, to come to the table and stay at the table, just even if all you're going to do is listen and then kind of seeing the kinds of tools that public health has that, could be, you know, public health has often an uh, obligation to share lots of transparency, lots of that transparency is not usually what ends up happening in law enforcement. So figuring out what 
where are the scaf where the where's the scaffold? Where can there be sharing of information? So and where can there be collaboration? So through that process, my a lot of my day to day is finding those places and then filling and connecting those dots with science. So as an example, maybe you've seen like um, fentanyl test strips. Mm-hmm. Um, learning that fentanyl is in um, is in highly potent um, synthetic medication, useful for lots of surgeries, but when um, taken by someone who may be expecting heroin or maybe expecting a pain medication can be really harmful. And a little goes a long way. Um, But for detection of fentanyl is something that was always in the hands of law enforcement, either forensic laboratories, crime labs, or special kits that law enforcement would have in the back of their trucks. These were tools, as we started to realize, that public health didn't have, community members didn't have. No one actually had other than law enforcement, and they've had it for a good long time. Mm. So liberating those tools and putting them in the hands of people who use drugs, people who work with people who use drugs, to have change the conversation, to engage and empower people to make different choices, where they use, how they use, how much they use, who they use with, what happens before, during, after. Those are all critical to whether people are going to survive their use or if it's even harmful. So a tool like a fentanyl test strip was one of the things that I worked on to help build the science behind and to show that lay people could use this, that it was successful, successfully detecting fentanyl and drug samples. But we had used science and we absolutely needed the police to open up their labs and to share some of these tools with us. And you know what? I think we're for the better for it because um, a lot of times the police aren't trained to necessarily look at populations. They look at a case. Right, like doctors, right. they look at a patient. Sure. They're not looking at a population. So our job as public health is to translate more of that. Um, so my day-to-day is finding stuff like that and then running the studies to make that. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's running numbers, but it's also taking the numbers um, the, the research that you've done and putting it in the hands of the right people, telling them what you've got. Hey, you show me your numbers. I'll show you my numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of schmoozing here and there, a little <laughs> politics running in there, I'm assuming. And the and right course, papers, and yeah, writing, all things, writing yeah. a lot of papers and getting into, um, um, how to make public policy, a, uh, a safer and better place uh, for all of us. That sounds pretty fascinating. That's the part that I think is at the end of the day, like taking the science and putting it in front of politicians or other other individuals who may be able to enact a change, a, a governor that can create an executive order or a legislature that can adopt. Um, you know, so we've been able to change. I mean, not I alone, clearly, but the, course, using yeah. the data um, and the impetus behind fentanyl test strips, for instance, like we've had Nixon era drug laws, you know, 1970 style drug laws around paraphernalia, like the actual carrying of a syringe was illegal for a long time because it was associated with drug use mm-hmm. and that you could be arrested. And depending on what state you live in, could be a misdemeanor or a felony. You could do 20 years in wow. some states just for having a syringe. That's changed in most places. Um, this has shifted, but it took a long, hard fights sure. and a lot of science to get to the point where that happened. For fentanyl test strips, it has shifted dramatically and very, very quickly. Almost every state has passed laws that have changed drug paraphernalia laws to either expand, either to remove the word paraphernalia because it's useless. These are helpful tools, not harmful tools for staying safe or shifting to make exceptions to include things like fentanyl test strips and other 
kind of drug checking. So, but I can't necessarily lobby for these things as I am also a publicly funded researcher, sure. but I can put research that we do that may be useful and have suggestions or, or recommendations that come forth from it. And um, I mean, legislators do it way better than I ever could. So well, it's not like you're shopping for <laughs> one buyer either. I mean, you're, you're realistically, I mean, it sounds like you're, uh, sure, you're going to, uh, you know, governor of a state or you're, you're going to a health czar or whomever, but there's other people that can also benefit from the same, uh, same technology, I would assume that are, you know, much further down the train, the chain as well, I would imagine. So you're, you're probably looking at all aspects of how, how these tools can actually help. Yeah, I think, and, you know, I think from that, you know, way back in the day when I was working for that technology company, um, really thinking about what kind of information do people respond to? What kinds of messages do, are really impactful and in what form? So it's kind of the strategy of, uh, you know, now I don't have, you know, it's like anything else sort of, I guess, with age and having, having skid your knees a couple of times, you realize like the right way to, or a little bit better way to do it. Maybe not the right way, but um but yes, putting information in front of, you know, it's always a uh, risk, though, as a scientist, because um, I mean, this has been a time of fake science and concerns about data, you know, lies on damn lies, you know, statistics and otherwise that could be twisted. But to the best of our ability to, um, you know, be objective and um, balanced and un non-biased in our can, approaches. You can back it up as well, which is... That's the thing, if we can, yeah, yeah, whenever. Certainly. One thing I like to talk about on this podcast is passion. Mm -hmm. When it comes to certain occupations, certain people get very passionate about what they do. I can see it in your eyes that you absolutely love what you do and that you are passionate to the core about helping solve this problem. I assume <laughs> you agree with that statement. Uh, yes, although maybe there is absolute passion on this topic and in this field, I think that kind of realizing how much we can do, you know, I think as hum humans and also, um, you know, the, the, that, I mean, I hate to say that work-life balance, but um, there's a lot of work uh, in my life for sure. And that, um, I, you know, I, I feel strongly that this is a life of um, service and um, humanity and I love, being part of this world and this life. And I want more people to be able to stay and be here with us. And so the opportunity to be part of this particular chapter in human history and to commit to making the world a better place for our kids, you know, I think is definitely like, this is where it began for me. And it's gonna, it probably isn't gonna stop anytime soon. And I enjoy it very much. But the sort of stories of hope are kind of what keeps it going, really. Yeah, and I imagine there's uh, there's dark days. I would imagine there's a lot of dark days that you feel frustrated. Frustration is probably a good word to use. Is that true? Yes, I think they. Um, there, I mean, the good thing is there are fewer of those than than not. So to to make it all, um, you know, if there wasn't hope, I couldn't do it. And um, I mean, you're on the right side of the. Yes, <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> you're not working in the jungles trying to uh, come up with a better, uh, you know, better drug. You're you're on the right side of the the whole thing. But at the same time, um, there there must be frustration at times. There's been a lot. I mean, there's so much loss. Um, and to the point, the the kind of work that I try to 
very much to do and um, have been devoted to is very much in, in a community empowerment and engaged model. So we, we have um, as much work in the community. So we have deep relationships with our organizations, with our community partners. And when they, they, they are under a, so much pressure and um, the workforce on behavioral health and but especially on harm reduction is just taken a huge toll. Not just, just way before the pandemic, you know, we were fentanyl has been hard. It's just a nightmare. And I think as someone who works kind of on the national level, seeing what happened in New England and the East Coast and looking to the Midwest and the West during COVID, it's just, it breaks my heart, you know? And the only thing we can, like many of us who are working in this field can think to do is to share everything that we learned as quickly as possible and hope that the same mistakes are the same, you know, it didn't, doesn't take this long, like we, that we learn and that human humanity will learn if we can share and disseminate information and um, communicate and network with one another. So I think that's sort of the investment in my partnerships with CDC and um, some of those more like national organizations to find other other scientists, other community um, partners, and hopefully that some of those shared shared experiences um, can benefit. And then really kind of looking to you know properly mourn when we lose friends, family, staff, and in, instead of doing that really in quietude and um, and alone, to lift up their lives and um, and really be able to celebrate the lives that were lived and um, tell their stories and like. For a long time, we couldn't do that. So even as scientists, um, being able to share some of this information with one another, like it would be something you wouldn't talk about because you don't want so-and-so's institution to find out this happened or that happened. And it's really at this point, we're human and we're all surrounded by every life has been touched in this country at this point. So at least having a chance to be able to talk about and be together, but also to find the steps forward together and and forgive ourselves so so you're dealing with drugs as a general field but but also overdose uh, have you had any personal experience with pain with uh having to use painkillers or or to uh you know going down a road i'm not you know i'm not ask, asking for your drug history <laughs> as much as i'm just thinking um you must at least know people that have gone through that cycle of of painkillers and potentially, you know, uh, getting hooked on something they wish they hadn't. Do you have any experience with that? Yeah, too many. Um, well, I mean, I had my fair share of experimentation and exploration um, with substances, but I had a very unfortunate um, injury when I was in my late 20s. And that back injury really landed me in pretty catatonic state. I couldn't sit for a long time. I couldn't stand for a long time. I was in constant pain. And it happened right when I was doing my degree. And I thought my, my world was just crumbling around me. I was in doctor's appointments all the time. I couldn't pay attention. And um, it just was extreme pain interference. And you know, being at the age I was, I was recently married. I was like, I'm not going to have children. Like I can't, I can't function like this. Everything was just, I was a deep depression. And the first um, medical professional that I spoke with at the time after the injury, you know, suggested a path of like heavy surgery that was absolutely going to change my life. And, um, I was not ready for that and it felt like there was no hope. And um, my, my husband um, really pushed me to 
use science and explore my other options and not you know, demand another approach. So um, that did land me at um, a pain clinic in around the New Haven area. And I left with medication, but other things too. Um, and the, I was really lucky in that regard that it wasn't just medication, but some pain medication, some physical therapy, some other suggestions on um, different things I could do to try to heal but that it was going to be a long road and I, and that surgery wasn't the first place to start. So I made that lo- a long, it was a long haul. It was a long two years of um, recovery and rehabilitation, but I absolutely benefited from pain medication to make that possible. And it was breathtaking to have your pain relieved in that way. And I cannot say that I, you know, I did it all through non-pharmacological therapies. It was absolutely pain medication that helped. In addition to other things, having good support, having a partner who was really behind me, having constant um, motivation that like I wanted to finish my degree. I wanted to finish this, um, be in this life. And I wanted to run again. I wanted to be part of just a, a mobile human race, you know, but they were really dark times. And I can see how the depression and, you know, with, with more of a reliance on the medications, and I finished that part of my degree and I started the medical examiner's office and it was case after case after case that looked just like me. And it was really humbling that I somehow had made it through this gauntlet of pain and, um, and come on on the other end. And, you know, what was it that separated me, f- but for the grace of God from the cases that I was reviewing. And, um, it was, um, kind of really both s- centering, but also, a way for me to kind of channel um, and connect with the people that I was, they weren't just cases, they were people. um, And they were people like me. Not always, but in a lot of instances, there were cases that were, and and people who were were lost and clearly way too early. So that was, Hmm. it was profound. And I think for (laughs) considering that it was amongst all of this other big questions about what do I want to do with my life. It was really centering for like, this is what I need to do. An eye opening, I'm sure. Lotsofmaps.com. Vintage, local, national and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. Work family balance. Um sounds like you got a lot going on lady <laughs> uh, I know you're married you got two children and um, I know uh, your job must be pretty demanding of your time and it's an unusual job um, and you've got children you work in a, a job where you're dealing with I- illegal drugs in some cases legal drugs in some cases uh, death overdose help me out with this list I mean it's it's not pretty uh, what do you tell your family? What do you tell your kids? How do you balance your life? Uh, I know that's several questions, but how, how do you balance that? I try to be as much of an open book as I can, recognizing my my kids are they're a little older now, and I think they're starting to learn a little bit more about the world around them. So at times it's been a little bit more simplified that um, it's public health or that I work as a scientist and and that their understanding of like when I'm at a university is sort of where where things have kind of stopped. But um, but I, we you know part of I I do the, usually the mornings with the with the kids and help them get to school. 
my husband's teaching and already at that time. But so we have time in the morning and we listen to the news every morning and talk about the world and kind of answer questions that they have. And every once in a while, there's something that is related to the work that I do. And every once in a while, I like blow my lid and <laughs> um, and they are really attentive to this and I think have woven together what it is that I do. And every once in a while, I try to make a point of, um, it wasn't all that long ago that we had a really serious crisis um, of um, encampments on the Mass and Cass area in Boston. And um, one of the solutions at the time was to remove everybody and put them into the Suffolk County Jail because there was plenty of room at the jail for people who are living on the street there and in their tents. And I flipped out. <laughs> you know, I was, could not contain my upsetness at this solution. And I was like, we, I'm going to, I want to learn more about what's happening here and try and do something to reflect what the stories and understand what, what nuance and what we could do to be, have different um, outcome here. And um, I've subsequently done two different studies down there. I have a third one going right now. And I've been able to reflect that back to um, the city, the health, the public health, um, local public health and, and other leadership in the area to shape and Sometimes that's just to reflect what's going on, and sometimes it's to help encourage different directions. But I try to reflect that back to and remind them. Like when it comes up in the news, I can sh- say, "Oh, you know, my study's going on in this way, and we're going to share this with the city this this month or this week," to kind of try to model to them to the, be part of an active part of their world, um, and then that's sort of how you can use science to do that. So I try to model that whenever I can, because it can get really complex otherwise. And I let kind of uh, the news. The news has a lot of horror and uh, death, destruction, fear and otherwise. But um, if I can put a spin of like, we're working on it, you know, if there's not a solution, but there, but we're working on it, that that we can you know, be, be part of this. But I really try as a family member and a mom to not have work on the weekends. It's really hard. It's really hard. But to keep the distance and um, protect the family time. And All right. I'm going to have you look into your crystal ball. Back when you were at McGill, you came up with uh, a beautiful idea to... Uh, Supervised injection facility. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Supervised injection facilities. Um, th- that was pretty cutting edge, good thinking. Um, there must be other things on the horizon that are, um, that are in the future, potentially, that you see as, as helpful to, to your, your fight. Um, I know currently 988 is a phone number that is being passed out and used to folks uh, that are that need help, not necessarily with drugs only, with, with any kind of issues. What else is on the horizon here that, that you see that will be helpful in your endeavor? Yeah, I, big shout out to SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, to have gotten 988 off the ground because that is a huge contribution to... Uh, all of Americans who have a chance to um, access it in, in their time of need, you know, and rather than having to look for that number for the Good Samaritans or whatever, maybe you have an opportunity and a, a real lifeline for any kind of crisis, health crisis, mental health crisis, and across the age spectrum too. It's really great. And for at least for the work that I do, um, you know, our, we're not separated mind and body. Uh, we can't just treat we have to treat the whole person, the whole patient, the whole community. Um, that person is very much part of a family and part of a uh, of a culture. And so remembering that and building out resources at every level is um, huge. So 98 is one of those key first lifelines for um, mental supports. But other things, 
Uh, so I'm working in, so I'll share about three kind of big things, two of which I'm working in and one that I like to build out more. But one has been, um, I took a little break and visited, left my skin, if you will, in, and stepped out of my life and visited another country and um, to think more openly and broadly. And I guess at other times and other places, this would have been like a sabbatical. But um, I took the opportunity to spend some time in Scotland and explored. Um, I wanted to see how naloxone and Narcan was being provided in the pharmacies there. I learned about Narcan being um, provided that you could walk into a pharmacy and get it. And I thought that was so cool. So I spent all this time organizing the plan and planning the trip. And I went and visited and um, had an extended vacation there. And I couldn't believe my eyes when I visited, I mean, a country that we have family roots there and stuff. I was like, this is such a completely different experience walking into a Boots pharmacy or otherwise known as like Walgreens owns Boots in Glasgow. And um, they were like, well, of course we have naloxone because we do methadone here and syringes and people can get foils and they can get their prep for HIV and they can get that. They can get all their, they can get everything here. And I just blew my mind. Like it just was one of many things for people who use drugs. It was a like a such an open door for um, an incredibly otherwise stigmatized condition that you could access it in a very open space. And you know, and I sat and I visited a half dozen pharmacies, and it didn't really matter if it was a a chain or a independent, if you will, kind of pharmacy, but a mom and pop, but. Everybody who came, who, I mean, sure enough, there are people who are regularly injecting heroin. They came in, get a dose of methadone. They check in. How are you doing? You know, do you need any uh, refill on your antibiotic or whatever? And then it was like a full healthcare experience. And I thought it was so liberating and it just blew my mind. And I came back and I was like, I feel like we're doing this piece of our workforce is being underutilized we aren't thinking about our community in a way that is more integrated. And at the time being in Rhode Island, the home of CVS, we had a couple partnerships that we could optimize. And um, so I kind of began um, a wonderful set of research studies thinking about the pharmacy as a public health partner, especially for harm reduction. Pharmacies, you probably know, they sell non-prescription syringes, so sterile syringes when a syringe service program closes at five o'clock on the weekends or at nights, people can still walk in and, and get a, a 10 pack of syringes in, in Massachusetts and many most states in the country. That's huge for HIV prevention. So my vision was, what if we could do that for Narcan and um, have that access? So we did some research and built that out to help change some laws <laughs> and voila it's one one aspect of one one of not not the only ways to get naloxone in the community my vision would be and a kind of extended from there was how what if we could get treatment access at that point and it would be amazing if it were like holistically all kinds of treatment for stigmatizing conditions but but especially for opioid use disorder where we need so much more buprenorphine or suboxone if you will going out in the community and even now there, there's injectable medications that you could have a pharmacist administer we got most of our vaccines for COVID-19 it's at pharmacies so the highly trained professionals in the healthcare profession that we're not partnering with for a huge need and most Americans live like five miles or less from a pharmacy so and we've I've done some research in this area and you know the work we've been doing really shows that people use these community pharmacies to start medication um, that 
different people who are not going to currently access treatment find it more accessible, their uptake is good, they stay into in the community pharmacies that it's accessible and fits their lifestyle and they don't have to wait for an appointment or have to cancel again because the doctor's not there, they go on vacation or whatever, whatever, whatever. That um, making the system work for the patient rather than the patient having to work for the system. So my, my big first crystal ball would be like to build that out more. And so uh, a month ago, the state of Nevada passed a law to allow for exactly what we did in our study, which was for pharmacists to provide um, access to medications for opioid use disorder in all the pharmacies in um, Nevada. So this is a super exciting and more, more states, I think, hopefully will come on board. But, um, you know, a shift for what happens if you could really just walk in and access care instead of having to go to the emergency department or get arrested or, you know, have to make you know jump through a billion in uh, health insurance hoops at a clinic or going to a clinic in that part of town or that place like it would be great if we had all of that you know we, we have that but we had it at health centers too and pharmacies and these other touch points so that would be a first big crystal ball changing how we access the second one i'm working on is super exciting um but is uh, kind of an extension of the fentanyl test strips we learned that fentanyl test strips are awesome but they only tell you absence or presence of fentanyl um and the drug supply is way more complex than that there are both additives that you know we people expect and those that they don't expect xylazine the animal tranquilizer that we're seeing um, added to fentanyl is the most recent addition that um, has a lot of health related problems especially wounds and um and other problems with withdrawal and heavy, heavy, heavy sedation that leaves people, you know, potentially victimized in public places if they're out for six hours. So there's lots to be worried about. But in this case, the tool, what tool do we have? So uh, we borrowed again from our law enforcement partners <laughs> and saw that there were a lot of field ready tools uh, with, again, with CDC funding and the wonderful state of Massachusetts in partnership at Department of Public Health. They've built out with our partnership overseeing the project but we have 15 sites around massachusetts where people can come and bring their remnant drug um, they can bring a used material um, a package um, a once used cooker or something like a cotton or a small package that has any remnant drug in it and they can provide that for testing and that's anonymous it is free totally accessible to um, i cannot tell you how many family members how many clinicians how many people in the community we come into contact with for in our, the course of our research, but, um, but really it's in partnership with a lot of those community organizations that are regularly in contact with people and they're all driven to know what is in the, these drugs we're actually using. You can, again, can plan differently, prepare patients differently. Um, and it turns out that people, when they have knowledge, you know, like any other consumer, you do different things with that information. I know, like, I think very differently when I can see how much sodium is in my fill in the blank, you know, or how much sugar is in my soda or whatever it may be. Like, people can make those sort of decisions. They can go to their manufacturer, or if you will, their distributor or their supplier and advocate for different things. But what's neat about it at the kind of larger level is that an organization or a scientist or a health department can look at it and say, we need more resources in X, Y, and Z, or there's a rise in this problem. I can't tell you for xylazine, for instance, we wouldn't have seen it until we had so many people dead, dismembered and amputated. And it's only because 
we have drug checking that we saw that it was here in the base state to the extent that it was. So you were so, able to jump on that a little earlier in the game. Earlier. But we are lucky in Massachusetts and there are a lot of unlucky states. So my crystal ball would be to have this model expand to as many places as we can sustain and we can support and that we have a whole strategy that empowers people to know what's in their drugs because it is about consumer safety. But, but you're, you're describing that same tool to be used in several different ways, which I assume most of your tools are, where it helps the individual to understand what it is that they're, they're ingesting. Um, but you're also suggesting that you can now find out whether there's an oncoming health crisis. Uh, I guess similar to, to COVID when they were looking at the uh, wastewater, right? Exactly. Sort of same yes. idea uh, where you can see what's coming potentially and adjust accordingly. We have other tools. I mean, in, I mean, in truth, like my early days of the medical examiner's office, re that research, what I learned was we, we, you know, we do look to the bloods and the other uh, specimens from a decedent to know what was in their body at the time they died, but it was to solve and answer one question, what caused this death? And when you sum all of those cases, you see the general trends. But unfortunately, that tells you what happened at the time of death, not necessarily what was in the drug. So someone who used alcohol in the morning, then maybe did a line of coke, and then um, came down from that with uh, a line of fentanyl. The fentanyl is the thing that killed them, not the alcohol, the cocaine, and the fentanyl over the course of the day. But the, that the results would say, oh, they were using polysubstances. They weren't using three substances at the mm -hmm. time. They were, it was one substance that was lethal. So our chance to kind of know what's in the, both what, what really was causal, but also looking to like, what do we prevent? And um, time and time again, when we look at the drug supply, we have a better chance to understand and kind of think about things differently. The only bad thing with this approach is that a supply-based approach is sort of like what Nixon would have used, what other people would have used yeah. to kind of empower and you know build bigger walls and mm -hmm. lots more guns. The key piece is that this is a public health approach to the supply. It's actually a harm reduction approach to the supply. It has to be in the hands of especially people who use drugs and uh, service providers and um, clinicians so that they can have a different kind of relationship with the supply than just this is what's in your urine today. You know, it's not helpful. Right. Yeah. You want to make sure you're not doing any harm by, by introducing that kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, for the greater good, it's got to be um, a good tool to, to use. Other places in the world have been doing this, kind of like in Scotland with the pharmacy stuff. Other places have been doing it. The challenge is that, um, like most places in the world, America is so different <laughs> on all the levels. But they don't also, the world is not suffering from fentanyl um, and the challenge that this synthetic drug market that the U.S. is. And that is a dynamic that changes the entire clock, you know, and our space-time configuration. Um but it just means we have to work a little harder and we have to work smarter and we have to have more people at the table and especially people who use drugs is at the table. Yeah. My third thing okay. is the workforce. Um, mm. and that's not something, you know, we did like some surveys and to understand what, what does the harm reduction workforce look like? But I think this is an evolving area of both the field being imbued with more, um, people working in it, especially more peer based and, um, alternatively educated, if you will, people who 
are very much val- need, need to be compensated and, and cared for and you know, have, have the kind of benefits that a lot of people who are engaged in more traditional employer environments, that they're not subjected to like per diem or hourly rate without kind of benefits. And that instead we have a workforce that is really rich. And so I think there's opportunity to do a lot of really exciting things on that front and standardizing it, but also um, empowering people with certifications and training. And I mean, maybe because I'm sitting in an institution of learning, but I think it's a chance to um, give a level of professionalism and economic power, but also political power to, um, and we've seen this with like community health workers and other um, more unionization that has happened across the country. And maybe unions aren't the only solution, but having a way to kind of be counted and to be part of this larger process means we have a chance to invest in it. So I like the idea of um, both kind of investing and building out the workforce in harm reduction because we have, you know, much like you know, thinking to the pharmacists, like we have a serious workforce challenge in healthcare in general, and we need more people at the table to help us because it's critical for our species. Well, so that being said, is it a growing field? Yes. Just not as, not as fast as you'd like it to be, I would assume, but. (laughs) Well, and I think um, we've sort of talked a lot about it. It's like, you know, it's a hard place to be. And so, um, that is the unique aspect that you, you know, working in, uh, I mean, as a scientist, I'm not looking around and necessarily seeing my colleagues always like, you know, annually dying. But like for a lot of people in this particular workforce, it is not uncommon, especially overdose, but, uh, but other, you know, health problems that are conflating and like uh, people were losing people too, too soon. So, but build, but knowing that that is part of what happens with the workforce, it's, this particular workforce needs support. You know, it's like you don't have cancer nurses who don't also have a behavioral health support system as well. Like people in this field have a constitution that is unbelievable. They are superhuman in many ways, but even they need a break and they need to be able to check in. Like we're seeing with with teachers and other, other, you know, human services um, interaction fields. um, This is a really important part of being a good outreach worker, being a good teacher, being a good nurse, being, being able to, um, so I think that's part of the revolution. I'm glad to be part of it. Um, uh, your original passion was HIV and AIDS. You still involved in, in one way or another in that, that endeavor as well? Absolutely. And I had a lightning bolt experience in 2017. One of my first efforts with the community people who use drugs in Massachusetts. We did some, we did what was called a rapid assessment and we called them thereafter RACS, rapid assessment of consumer knowledge, the consumer people who use drugs and their knowledge. And we, um, we, uh, you know, working with the state, we looked at the map and we're like, you know, there seemed to be kind of, we don't know a lot of what's happening in Lowell right now. And it seems like we think there's some Narcan going out. We're not totally sure. There seems to be, a, you know, you know, people are talking about drug use problem up there. Maybe we should learn about it. It was early in fentanyl in 2017. And we started to ask some questions and go up and prepare for doing some surveys. We got our approval from our ethics boards and started out in my team was it's comprised from some colleagues at Northeastern and UMass Lowell at the time. And, um, and I was at Boston Medical Center. And um, some of my more and more senior uh, colleagues were people that I'd learned from being in the field for HIV-related work. And, but, you know, for a good long time, small break here, but uh, for a good long time, we've made, made some 
awesome fucking progress on HIV, especially in this country. Like for HIV that's injection driven, like we've reduced transmissions dramatically until Indiana, which was again, access to syringes, to sterile syringes, but we didn't have outbreaks like the ways that we were seeing with HIV. So it was really a pat on our, our back that we have medications that work. We have preventive medications. We have after exposure medications, staying on the medications is the key. And so, you know, we really were kind of like, you know, not that we're done here, but we've made some serious progress. So when we walked into Lowell and we started talking with people who were using drugs there, it was unbelievable, like what was happening. And we did not know that we had stumbled into an HIV outbreak that was like nothing we had seen in the Massachusetts for, you know, decades plus. It, you know, we had 250 people with HIV cases after it was all said and done. And all the case tracing had been done by epidemiologists, not me, but at the state, um, at, by the state and local health departments. And, you know, they were linked to, we had numerous CDC investigations, which I was, again, excited to be part of and build those, that skill set, but also would like to see um, what was happening here. And at the time, people were like, what is it that's happening? You know, and they're like, it's fentanyl uh, and there's no syringe access mm-hmm. and there's no Narcan. And like, of course, you have HIV outbreak and a ton of people dying and no help. And so we were, you know, that was a very short period of time, but we were able to collect enough data, um, reflect that back to the community. And it was the most, I'll never forget it. It was one of those, it was one of those story days where we presented the results to in a community meeting at this, at the time, a Brazilian church that was already, they provided food and meals for families in the area. And we're in the back of the, of the church at the community meeting and the state was there and the city was there and some of our community partners we'd met were there and law enforcement was there. And, um, we shared what we found and our recommendation to, consider opening uh that this place really needs access, better access to syringe clean clean syringes or, or sterile syringes rather and better access to naloxone there were 11 11 narcan um kits that had gone out that year for that community it was un, it was like unconscionable um the police were really in a uh, different place with the community at that time uh, very heavily policing so suffice it to say it was not it was the public health a nightmare to say the least we presented this information back and the lovely woman who was hosting Jamie Dillon raised her hand and she said, well, why don't we open a syringe service program here? And it was like the needle across the record, <laughs> you know, like every, every head turned to her and it was, and the jaws dropped. <laughs> and we were like, uh, that's, that's a great idea. Like, and you know, it was amazing after that, everything kind of fell into place. The state, you know, helped support the, community started to help support and this is a site of uh one of uh, of lowell's um first syringe service program at that space a brick and mortar syringe service program and it continues to operate at this um today but it was that meeting that we realized you know this little bit of community data was extremely powerful in addressing an hiv you know subsequent to um our surveys we learned that there was a huge outbreak um, but there are many things that the community needs beyond the syringe service program but it really helped you know connect and center the kind of resources that people could connect to they were otherwise there was nowhere for them to go sure. other than to so well, yes it's still there that's but only good. when we needed to be there you know thankfully we're still making good progress on hiv but be it's one of those things like 
they're thankfully related tools. Yes, um, obviously. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say that you weren't involved with HMB, no, no. but I also understood that you that was your main cause when you were younger, and and now it's it's part of the cause. Speaking of that, are you protesting anytime soon? And where can we find you? <laughs> are those days over, the protesting? I know now you have to be nice, play nice. Um, but you obviously are, are heavily opinionated, I'm sure. And, and I'm sure you, you feel a certain way. But um, w at what point do you pick up a sign and go walk around and, and protest? Or, or, or when is it? we need to use diplomatic relationships and try to go in there in the right way. Is that still in you? To oh, potentially? yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do both. Well, I think like, <clears throat> I, you know, try to, as a, uh, feel like civic engagement's really important. Any chance to be, to be present, um, Absolutely. bear witness, but also, also to raise your voice when it's necessary. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me a little something about advice to, to folks that might want to go down a similar path, not necessarily the exact path, but I mean, obviously the, the main thing that I'm, I'm taking away from your history is schooling and lots of it, <laughs> um, but also great opportunities and great uh, mentors and um, being in the right place at the right time probably didn't hurt either. Uh, obviously science in itself, school is a big part of that. Um, what's, what's the step that you would recommend, to, you know, uh, to, to a, a young person that, that would like to get involved with research or science or data in that regard? What's, what's your advice to that person? Yeah, there's a, I think this, uh, there's a large movement for like citizen science and lots of really cool opportunities to be part of citizen science, um, activities all, all over like different disciplines. Um, and so that's something really worthwhile. I think volunteering is huge and being able to connect with other people and explain to other people. And, um, and that's, that volunteerism is something that I look for in all of the people that I hire to bring onto the team and, um, a willingness to and, and an openness to try new things, um, which I know seems like a small thing, but it's actually huge to um, get out and explore the world. And and then I think I think back to like the opportunities when you know people offered up like, well, why don't you do this? To really give yourself a chance to fail, that it, failing is part of learning. And um, you know I could have. There were plenty of opportunities for me to fail. I failed plenty of opportunities times along the way, but even those were, it's worth worthwhile to kind of stretch a little bit and and try those chances. Um, and for on the education part, it's tricky. I think for to for being a kind of professor, there's really no two ways to cut that track. <laughs> like you have to like yeah. But I, I'm even thinking just uh, but, you know someone who's who's not not as high up as you, but but someone who could do some research or someone that could play a role, whether it's a small part or, or not. If, maybe they're not, uh, even, even education might not even be the factor there. It's the, maybe it's the passion uh, to play some sort of role in what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think finding that passion, finding that, um, what makes you um, get excited about knowing the answer to, um, or being part of something. I think for an early job that I really enjoyed 
was actually being a census enumerator in two, I didn't showing my age, but in 2000 and knocked in based on where you live, you, you know, I was assigned to Cambridge, which Cambridge, Massachusetts was where I was living. And I knocked on every door in my, you know, my pre, my, if you will, precinct, <laughs> I, um, couple mile radius and I met all kinds of people and I learned how to talk to people and get them to open the door and, and that was my job but it was collecting data according to a certain way but also meeting people and so uh, even small opportunities like that you're gonna learn I think to say this to anybody that my my dad always um, really encouraged like no matter what you do to try to find a way to learn something from it and to have to go in with that attitude you know learn how to deal with difficult people or you're going to learn how to like you know build the best spreadsheet or you're going to learn how to like but having that kind of goal in mind um, no matter what it is you're doing and, and then that that sort of sets you up well for a career the other thing I learned from him as a professional musician who also rebuilt old Rolls-Royce and Bentleys as a side gig and sold real estate and was at home with us as you know shuffling us around sometimes and from my mom too juggling many different things but for him i think i learned have more than one thing because there will be frustrating times and days and find some other things that make you tick and keep you excited about this world and this life and for me you know i was doing hiv related research but i was like you know i'm really curious about this whole overdose thing and it ended up being my whole entire career in, in medicine or in public health it could be a different topic but it could be a different population it could be a different place it could be something completely different but um but i think as a as a career or as an occupation it helps if it's something that helps make you money or gives you something in return so that you get that level of satisfaction out of it too so it's different from service and volunteerism and you know giving to a community organization. I think that's really important too, but in terms of an occupation, it's also helpful to have something else that you can that you know you can do. Like, you know, always can pick up and I can always sit down and do statistics if I have to and that I like doing it, you know, but I really like doing this other stuff that I'm able to do. It makes you dangerous too, right? Absolutely, they secret weapons. <laughs> Got your utility belt ready to use your tools at any time. <laughs> um, uh, one other question, and then I'll let you be because we've been going on for a long time here. People that want to get informed about what it is you're doing, uh, the numbers, the community, the 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 outreach is is there a, a way that they can follow the work that's being done by by yourself and your community? Are there websites to go to? Um, any suggestions of of how to how to sort of uh, follow along. Yeah, a big one for our drug supply stuff, especially in Massachusetts, but also across the country is um, streetcheck.org is a interactive website. And we have all of our kind of drug supply data that we aggregate on that. And you can totally reach out to and see some of the kind of examples. And then at the Opioid Policy Research Collaborative website for um, at Brandeis, are some of the other kind of featured things that we're doing and and then hopefully um you know if we get, people can absolutely reach out to me and individually i'm happy to to talk or point some directions or um welcome I, and i imagine that, that, that is there something on on those websites that that might give us a, a chance to see how we could help whether it's uh going out to protest going out to voice our opinions about changing policies and things like that are there there's their information on that as well on the um, Opioid Policy Research Collaborative website, there's some definitely some resources. And I think on, on Street Check, it's definitely more of a, if you wanted to submit a sample, 
for it to be tested or um, it's a little bit more wayfinding for people who might be looking to use those resources or use the data to understand you know, what's happening in your community. But feel free to reach out. I have, I'm not short on ideas or ways to help and get involved <laughs> too. <laughs> but it is real. Like, I mean, I think that this is a health problem. Um, the, you know, the opiate crisis is huge. And not being a medical professional, but, um, or mental health professional, I should say even. But um, there's so many good resources out there, especially for, um, for you know, at the, at the, in the moment, but also you're not alone. That's for sure. Tracy Green, thank you so much for being on Occupations. Really appreciate your uh, your insight. And I uh, hope you'll join us again for another version of Occupations. Occupations has been brought to you by lotsofmaps.com. Please follow Occupations, the podcast, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to find information about our next episode or to see what past episodes are available. <laughs>